Hello and welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists, where we talk all things non-clinical, helping you survive, in my opinion, one of the most rewarding, but also most difficult professions out there. I had the honor today or a couple days ago to interview Dr. Robert Lufkin, MD. He's a physician and medical school professor at both UCLA and USC, focuses on applied science of health, longevity, and consciousness. Robert is not your typical mainstream run-of-the-mill physician. Although he writes in his newly released book, The Lies I Taught in Medical School, that he is part of the establishment, that is probably the only thing I have to disagree with Robert on. He is an independent thinker, He's looking at the literature. He's finding ways to live the best life possible. Robert, I can't thank you enough for the amazing interview. Guys, you're going to love this, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Do you feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel? You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski, former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10 minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to cashflowcoachusa.com, scan the QR code or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50, and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. Funny, I was in Disney World last week, considering handing out your book to every person that was at that park. (laughs) Craig, we'll get some copies for you then. (laughs) So um, how does a, in your book, you said you are part of the establishment. How does a medical doctor, part of the establishment, start thinking the way you're thinking? Well, um, we're live, right? We're, we're yeah, we're yeah, recording. Okay. I, I record the intro Perfect. separate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, basically, I I didn't have a choice. I was forced into that decision because I. Um, I was living my life normally. I was, you know, teaching at a medical school. I was doing research. I was seeing patients. I was uh, doing all that stuff. And uh, I came down with four chronic diseases that were, in my mind, were sort of unrelated. Um, I went and saw my doctor. I was put on prescription medicines for all of them. And that would be the end of story, except those chronic diseases were diseases that my father had gotten and he died from them, but he was in his eighties, almost 90 when he died. And I was much younger. I still had kids in elementary school. I'm thinking, wow, this isn't going to end well. You know, if I'm getting these diseases now, which, you know, killed my father, 
Um, so it basically, I was forced to re-examine uh, what my beliefs were and what I was teaching and what many people still believe and are still teaching in medical schools. And uh, uh, this isn't any any original research I did. I just basically went back to the peer-reviewed articles and tried to educate myself as best as possible. And I realized there was uh, there was a lot of change uh, in our understanding of chronic diseases and in particular the diseases that I had and the, um, the role that how one, how they were related by common underlying metabolic factors and how the prescription drugs that I was given and that I had prescribed for people actually didn't, they treated the symptoms, but they didn't really have much effect on the progression of the disease, uh, the kind of the root cause, if you will. Uh, and so I, um, I looked dove even deeper and and there's a lot of work about how these diseases can be reversed and these metabolic conditions can be reversed with uh, lifestyle choices. Uh, so I looked very, very long and hard at uh, the lifestyle choices I was making. I completely changed my my diet, my sleep, my you know exercise, my stress. and uh, long story short, I went back in to see my my doctors and they they couldn't believe it. They said, what what's going on? What happened? You know, you basically you're you're cured of these diseases and you don't need to be on these medicines anymore. So um, I now uh, become interested in helping other people understand this and not fall into the same situation that I was in. And, and unfortunately, um there, this message isn't very widely known, and uh, there are a lot of things that are still being taught in medical school, and many of my colleagues still accept that uh, I believe are incorrect and that I disagree with now. How do your colleagues react? So some of the lies in your book, a calorie is not just a calorie, more insulin doesn't treat diabetes, um, metabolic and metabolism can lead to mental health issues. How are your colleagues dealing with the book you published? Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, as you know, as scientists, um, you know, we all we all um, you know, it's not a matter of faith; it's a matter of what the evidence is. So, you know, we're all open minded, and you know, I like to think my colleagues are open minded too, and we may agree to disagree. But if once the evidence comes in, you know, if if the evidence says that drinking diet Coke every day will make me healthy, I'm going to start ordering it by the case, you know, but I don't think that's <laughs> the evidence supports that now. But as you know, as scientists, we just have to look at the evidence. And sometimes the evidence is not clear. And they're, you know, intelligent people can have different viewpoints on a given situation. But for me, um, it's it's pretty powerful and compelling that uh, I think there's some basic things that are being overlooked. And as a result, a lot of people are being harmed by this. And I don't think anyone will disagree with the fact that our health is out of control. Obesity and overweight rates are unprecedented, never in the history of the world. Have there been so many overweight and obese people? Never have there been so many type 2 diabetics. Uh, that happened about 10 years later, and that is increasing now. Uh, and then we're seeing increasing rates are going to be coming from heart disease, cancer, 
Alzheimer's disease and all the metabolic conditions, hypertension that that are, in my opinion, are all linked by some serious underlying medical um, metabolic situations that are being overlooked by the healthcare system as it is. What are we overlooking? What are we doing as a general population that's breaking our metabolism and causing this obesity and diabetes and cancer? Well, I think it's we we could trace it really um, to the last uh, the last few decades. In other words, um, the 1950s uh, we we didn't have the 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 problem with obesity and diabetes and the other things. It's really happened in the last 20 or 30 years or 40 years even. Um, one of my chapters in my book, I talk about a disease called uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that when I went to medical school, didn't even exist. If someone got damage to their liver and fatty liver changes, it was due to alcohol by and large. There were some other things that could do it, but it was basically you assumed they were drinking and it was alcoholic fatty liver disease. But in 1980, a new form of liver disease appeared this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which today is the number one cause of liver transplants and liver failure uh, worldwide. And uh, the medical establishment is unclear on how to treat it. You know, they, they, they're not sure what it's due to. They think it's due to, you know, you know, maybe lose weight is the recommendation from standard uh, approaches for fatty liver and it may get better, but I think there's very strong evidence that we cite in the book from people like Robert Lustig at UC San Francisco, who did controlled trials and kids with fatty liver, and they were able to reverse it in a matter of weeks by changing their, their diet and removing an interesting toxin in the, in the diet that's handled not surprisingly by the liver, through similar pathways that alcohol, which is also a toxin, ethanol, is handled by the liver. And not surprisingly, this non-alcohol toxin um, is, is uh, the cause of uh, many, many cases of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And its use in 1980 spiked upwards as our diets changed. And we began using more and more of this in our diet. So it's at least there's reasonable associative evidence that, um, you know, these are correlated. Is this toxin high fructose corn syrup? Um, specifically fructose. Fructose. Um, high fructose corn syrup is, is roughly half glucose and half uh, fructose, sometimes a little more. Glucose is metabolized by all the cells of our body, essentially, almost all of them. Fructose, on the other hand, is like ethanol. It's it's uh, when it exceeds certain levels, certain very low levels, it needs to be detoxified, and the detoxification organ is the liver. So the liver handles fructose. So when we eat large amounts of fructose, it goes to the liver and um, causes fatty changes in the liver. So. Uh, to your point, high fructose corn syrup was uh, essentially developed in the 1980s and all the soda makers famously switched from cane sugar to high fructose corn syrup for the Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I hope they're not sponsors of your show. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, they're not. <laughs> uh, similarly, um, uh all the junk foods switched from the majority of them switched from cane sugar to high fructose corn syrup. 
And the reasons are one high fructose corn syrup has a longer shelf life. It lasts, you know, indefinitely, basically. Um, the second thing is it's a liquid. So cane sugar will crystallize in foods and it'll be crunchy after a while. And you may not want your hostess Twinkie to be crunchy if the cane sugar crystallizes. But the most important thing and the kind of the, the pernicious financial incentives behind this whole thing is that the government actually subsidizes the production of high fructose corn syrup by its massive corn subsidies, as well as subsidies for other junk food um, materials. But corn is hev heavily subsidized <clears throat> so that high fructose corn syrup is actually cheaper than an equivalent amount of cane sugar. So one reason why junk food is so inexpensive is because it's our tax dollars are used to subsidize it. Now, the money comes back into the system on the healthcare side when people go in and need treatment for their diabetes and you know money flows back in it flows out for the subsidies on these <clears throat> so why i've read your work lustig's work jason fung why is the medical establishment not understanding what you're talking about why is it not agreed upon that this is so terrible for your liver and for your health um i think Part of it is that, uh, and I was certainly an example of this, and I, I still am in many ways, that um, medical science is very, <clears throat> very, diff very, uh, it's very complex. There are a lot of complex systems. So in order to be specialized in one thing, you, you have a, a vertical area. So the endocrinologist may not talk to the, the liver specialist, you know, or the the Alzheimer's doctor who deals with the brain fog and the early Alzheimer's disease may not talk with the endocrinologist, even though increasingly Alzheimer's disease is strongly linked, linked to diabetes and metabolic disease. It's now called type three diabetes because of that association. But anyway, in the medical system, th there's not a lot of uh, cross talking and, and, uh, learning from other people. There are also pernicious financial incentives. Some are conscious and unconscious, and some are, you know, I'm sad to say intentional or people are aware of them. There's strong financial incentives to prescribe certain types of drugs. You know, the American Heart Association still recommends vegetable oil or canola oil as being heart healthy when there's <clears throat> a very large amount of evidence suggesting that it's not. American Diabetes Association recommends eating foods for diabetics with moderate sugar content in which they say that's okay, just quote, cover it with insulin. Um, this is not a good approach and it, you know, it makes the type two diabetes worse. Um, so it, it it's very complicated. It, it's much easier to prescribe a statin or to give someone metformin or insulin for their type two diabetes in in what modern medicine has for an office visit of you know seven minutes or so in some cases. Things that that I had to do to change my lifestyle were very challenging lifestyle changes. They affected what I ate, what I you know how I slept, all different kinds of things that couldn't really be communicated to me necessarily in a seven minute visit. In fact, when I was diagnosed with one of my diseases, which was hypertension, which almost half of adult Americans have anyway, and I was prescribed a blood pressure medicine. And on the way out the door, the guy said, uh, 
you know, even though I wasn't overweight, he said, you know, I said, is there anything I could do about this? And he says, yeah, you know, exercise more and, you know, lose weight. And I go, okay, you know, and, oh, and don't eat salt, you know, which is sort of the common medical advice. But, um, you know, in the book, we talk about how uh, hypertension is strongly linked to metabolic disease. And it's one of the symptoms of metabolic syndrome. And in fact, by going on a diet that reverses metabolic disease, one of the symptoms, which which I certainly had, and it's a common symptom that people have even days after starting a metabolically healthy diet, is they'll get lightheaded because the hypertension goes away <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> but so uh, to your question, there, there are many different things. You know, you go to a hospital and you say, hey, we have a program just like Verta Health does and other people have, have shown in controlled trials that type two diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance, right? If you remove carbohydrates from the diet, the type two diabetes will go away and people won't need insulin, they won't need metformin. And you can, you can basically get them off these things. The problem is um, hospitals are businesses. You know, um, the number one surgery is, is a cash cow for hospitals, just like radiology is. And, and, but surgery, especially the number one, driver for amputations, which is the big surgery, is type 2 diabetes. The number one driver for uh, blindness uh, is type 2 diabetes. The number one driver for renal failure and consequentially, consequently uh, renal dialysis, which people in renal failure will require, is type 2 diabetes. That's why uh, some of the biggest supporters for the American Diabetic Association which recommends eating diets that make your diabetes worse are companies whose business is dialysis. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I'm not saying it's all a big conspiracy, but I'm saying there are, there are numerous incentives that are not necessarily aligned for ultimately the health of the patient. I wish that were true, but it's not necessarily always that way. I don't think people wake up and say we're going to harm the patient, but um, the incentives align sometimes so that I believe people are harmed by the way medicine is being practiced today. It sounds like it's a conscious effort, if I can be honest, reading between the lines of how you're explaining this. Of course, if my foot falls off, they have to amputate it. They want me to eat more carbohydrates to make more money. So let's say I come to you, I'm 36, I'm diabetic, I'm depressed, I have high blood pressure. How do you start to reverse that with diet? What kind of diet should I be eating to live a long life and look healthy like you do? Well, there's um, the one of the common causes underlying hypertension and type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and cancer and cardiovascular disease is um, metabolic syndrome or metabolic imbalance, which is really insulin resistance. And the interesting thing about that is that could be manipulated very much or controlled by the things we put in our mouth, our diet. And today we're inundated with junk food. Uh, all around us is junk food everywhere. And junk food, because of the content of the food, 
drives obesity, drives hypertension, drives type two diabetes, and drives these metabolic abnormalities. I mean, there's a there's a, a great quote somebody said that um, if we all stopped eating any food that wasn't available 150 years ago, most of us would have a significant improvement in our health. And if you think about that, that's probably true. But what does that say about our current food supply today? <laughs> is it even food? I mean, half the stuff right. I see people eating is it's just chemicals. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, I I I have a confession to make. I am a I am a recovering junk food addict. You know, yep, left to my right. own devices. <laughs> I'll eat red vines and cereal and orange juice and you know, all the stuff that I thought was healthy. I mean, my mom was a dietitian, so I was raised in, you know, trying to eat healthy foods, but it's just the foods that I was taught was, was healthy. And even <clears throat> today, even more so, all the junk foods that we're inundated with uh, really contribute to the situation for all these diseases that we're, we're facing. And that was, that was the other wake-up call that I had. My diseases were hypertension, prediabetes. I had joint pain gout, you know, arthritis. And it seemed like these were all very different diseases of what I've been taught. You know, joint pain is very different from hypertension, which is very different from diabetes. So, but what I'm, what I'm learning, and I think the evidence now is showing with the most recent research is there's a common underlying cause for these, this metabolic dysfunction driven by junk food, among other factors. And uh, if we reverse the junk food and the, the metabolic disease, then all these, all these chronic diseases not only stop their progression, but we can actually reverse them. So this is hyperinsulinemia, right? Where you have insulin levels so high all of the time, and then the downstream effect is the diabetes, the cancer the metabolic syndrome. Yep. Yeah. And Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, <clears throat> type type two diabetes, when, when we say diabetes, that's the type we're talking about. There's another type, but it's essentially rare. It's less than 10% type one diabetes, but type two diabetes is the type we all face now. It's And it's caused by resistance to insulin. A body requires more and more insulin over time. And another thing changed in my thinking. I used to think that diabetes was something some people got, some people didn't get. It's kind of like, you know, maybe I got it from my parents or maybe I didn't. But there's some interesting data now that changed my mind on that. They, they If you look at a large populations of non-diabetic adult Americans, like the Framingham study or the NHANES data, if, if you plot the markers for uh for diabetes risk, which is called hemoglobin A1C. I don't know if you've ever talked about that with your with your audience, but mm -hmm. that's a marker for glucose damage to the red blood cells. And it it the higher it is, the more the damage. And once it passes 6.5%, then uh, the doctor will diagnose you as, yes, you're diabetic. And then I can start charging for the visit. I can prescribe insulin. I can prescribe metformin. There are different things you can do that, that kick in. But below that, um, I'm not diabetic, so I can't, I can't charge that. But what happens is over time, a fascinating thing happens in non-diabetics. That is almost all of us, the average HA1C increases the older we get. So my thinking has changed. What I think of now is diabetes and this insulin resistance. It's, it's like gray hair, you know, in other words, 
if we live long enough and we don't die of something else, we will all become type two diabetic, you know, over time as our HA1C creeps up. So what does that mean? It just means that, that for most people, it's probably a good idea to adopt lifestyle and eating habits that protect you from diabetes as if you, as if you were at risk for diabetes, because I believe that most of us, you know, there are a few people who manage not to be insulin resistant, but on the average, most of us, our HA1C grows up the older we get and we're on that path. So should we be very concerned about all carbohydrate intake or some carbs? Cause in your book, you made a post on Instagram saying that carbs were not essential and like people like lit you up in the comment section. Are you eating zero carb right now? Well, um, just, yeah, to, to, to summarize sort of the, the carbohydrates, as your audience probably knows, are the, are one of three macronutrients. If we divide kind of the major food groups, you know, it's fat, proteins and carbohydrates. And as it turns out, as you say, fats and proteins are essential. In other words, we die if we don't eat those. Carbohydrates, on the other hand, which include sugar or refined carbohydrates like starches and bread and cereals and things like that, actually are not required. They're actually populations of humans that that survive without eating any carbohydrates to speak of. You know, they're basically carnivores, like some Inuit populations or the Maasai in Africa who just, you know, drink blood and milk from animals. And um, so people have made the interesting observation that if you have type two diabetics and you put them on a diet with very, very low carbohydrates called what's called a ketogenic diet or you know, even a carnivore diet, the diabetes goes away. And that's the, that's the, the trick there. So person back to your question, personally, um, my hemoglobin A1C, this marker was going up and I was, I was diagnosed with prediabetes. Um, so I changed my diet and I got rid of essentially all the refined carbs and the sugar. Now there are carbohydrates and other things like like they're non-digestible carbohydrates and vegetables and stuff. Those are really not bad. You don't absorb them or anything. The really ones to watch out for are the ones that spike your insulin or spike your glucose. And those are refined carbohydrates, starches, and then sugars. So I do, I do avoid those. I'm in ketosis most of the time, which means my body has switched from burning glucose to burning ketones, which I think is a healthier way to be. And I certainly feel better. My mind's a lot clearer. I don't get that brain fog that I used to get when I ate a lot of junk food, which is high in carbohydrates. Is there any risk of being in ketosis too long? Um, no, that's, it's a, there's a, a couple couple arguments to that. One, first of all, we want to be clear, we're seeing ketosis. There's another medical word called ketoacidosis, which... You know, physicians are busy, you know, they they sometimes confuse those two words. Ketoacidosis is a life-threatening condition that type 1 diabetics get. Um, it's unrelated to dietary ketosis, what I'm talking about. Dietary ketosis is just what happens if you fast and you don't have any food intake, your body starts burning fat, which is a good thing because you, you lose weight. <laughs> Most of us can afford to lose a little weight. Or if you have a low-carbohydrate diet, there aren't carbs to burn to make glucose, then your body uses fat in the diet to make uh, glucose itself and also ketones, but most of the energy is produced by ketones. So 
They're one of the original treatments for epilepsy from 2000 years ago from seizures was to uh, just have the patient stop eating. And when you stop eating, your body goes into ketosis, as we said, with fasting. And the ketogenic diet is a reliable treatment for many, many kinds of epilepsy that's still used to this day. So there are children and adults that are put on a ketogenic diet that essentially live their entire life on a ketogenic diet uh, without, without consequences. It's not like they get a bunch of heart attacks or anything. And then Chris Palmer, who you may have had on your show, he's a psychiatrist from Harvard Medical School, just wrote a book called Brain Energy, where he takes patients who are very sick psychiatric patients hospitalized for visions and voices and manic depressive symptoms, and he puts them on a ketogenic diet. And some, not all of his patients, but some of his patients have dramatic reversals of their mental illness to the point that they can actually go off all meds and leave the hospital. In fact, I was just talking to him about it and he said, yeah, I said, how do you know it works for your patient? He goes, well, I have one patient at home. He says, uh, he says he knows when he's eating junk food or he has carbs in his diet because the voices start coming back and talking to him again when he eats, you know, potato chips or something. So and and similarly, um, sort of to jump to another disease, Heather Sanderson is a, a great uh, Alzheimer's researcher who she has nursing homes that um, treat Alzheimer's patients. But unlike most nursing homes, people who go to her nursing homes for Alzheimer's disease get discharged because they get better and they go home. And uh, one of the foundational elements is everybody's on a ketogenic diet at the nursing home. And I say, you know, come on, how do you know that ketosis um, works for your Alzheimer's patients? You know, do you have evidence? And there is, there's published evidence from Dale Bredesen and others, but she, she, she relayed an interesting anecdote. She said, yeah, well, for some some people, it's really dramatic. For example, Mr. Jones over there, when he's in ketosis and his grandchildren come into the room, he smiles and hugs them and knows all their names and interacts with them normally. When he eats some junk food or goes out of ketosis, he basically uh, can't remember their names anymore and doesn't even recognize them when they come into the room. It can be that dramatic. So that's mind-blowing for me. I lecture to dental students sometimes about depression and I always bring up Chris Palmer's book. Okay. And I just say, I, I go, I know people think ketosis like six pack abs, but think like mental energy, but how is this not more accepted? If Chris Palmer sees schizophrenia reversed, although he did say it doesn't cure it, but improve symptoms. How are more doctors not saving lives with a ketogenic diet? Well, it, you know, it, it's funny because it's, it's not just, you know, some, some mental illness, not all, of course, and, and some, some Alzheimer's disease, not all Alzheimer's disease, but also people are looking at ketogenic diets for cancer treatment, not to replace, you know, the mainstream stuff we've been doing for 50 years, but as, as something to add on that makes a difference. And these ketogenic diets that correct metabolic disease can also reverse hypertension. They can also reverse type two diabetes, and they can also, of course, reverse uh, 
uh, obesity. That's why, you know, people have six pack abs who are on ketogenic diet because all this subcutaneous fat, you know, tends to go away. But it, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, why aren't more of our colleagues out there shouting this from the roof? Because it's really, I mean, I, I started this about four years ago and I've been, I've been in ketosis and on ketogenic diet now for four years. And sure, I miss the sugar, you know, I miss, I miss the, the bread and the sweets that I used to exist on all the time, but you know, I'd rather live to see my grandchildren and I've been able to substitute things that I never used to eat like butter or, you know, meat with fat on it and a lot of, you know, avocado, guacamole dip. Um, you know, personally, I started fasting, so I eat one meal a day. And so I, I don't count calories at all. And I just have my one ketogenic diet, my meal, my low carb diet once a day. I eat as much as I want, pretty much anything I want, as long as it doesn't have carbs in it or seed oils. And, um, you know, I'm a happy camper. What does your doctor tell you when he checks your cholesterol? Yeah, the the uh, there's an association with cholesterol with elevated cholesterol, and people are on a high fat diet. And you know, I, this goes back to Ansel Keys and a lot of people a long time ago. I mean, I ha still have colleagues who tell patients to not to eat eggs because of cholesterol, which you know, even the American Heart Association in 2015. Now, you know, admits that dietary cholesterol doesn't affect serum cholesterol. And it's not even clear that serum cholesterol is a big factor for heart disease risk. Half of people who come in with heart attacks have normal cholesterol. Um, but to your question, it depends on the, you know, it depends on the doctor. If they're not educated and the cholesterol is high, they'll say, you need to be on a statin, even though my calcium score is zero, you know, uh, my CT calcium score. So um, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, education and a lot of acceptance that has to be out there. You have to find a doctor who has read these articles and is familiar with, you know, Chris Palmer's work and other people's work in a ketogenic diet. I wasn't nervous about saturated fat intake or LDL, HCL until I read Peter Atia's book, uh, Outlive. Did you read his book? Yeah, Peter's a really good guy and a really smart guy, but he goes off the rails. And, you know, he, he says most of the stuff I really agree on, but I, I disagree with him on a few key points related to cholesterol and APO, you know, fractionations and things like that. So, you know, hey, hopefully we're we're both intelligent people and we can we can agree to disagree. I mean, he has a lot of great ideas. I you know, I recommend his podcast. I recommend his book. He's getting great exposure, but I think some of the things in his book um I disagree with. I and I do too, because he made a comment in his book, and I'm not here to trash him at all, but you want your cholesterol as low as you can go. But aren't there studies connecting low cholesterol to dementia in your later years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's uh, overall risk. I mean, that's the the famous studies of uh, using statins to lower heart attack heart attack rates, and you know, statins do lower heart attack risk, but it's a very small percentage. You know, the absolute rel versus relative risk. It's you know, like one percent or so. But when you look at meta analysis of large studies with statins, 
an interesting ha thing happens when you include other causes of death taking a statin has no effect on the overall death rate on people in other words taking a statin in a population it may lower the risk of heart attack a very small amount but something else happens to the death rate with other people so that it makes up for it what, what is that what could that possibly be well as you say the suicide rate goes up other things related to mental health issues which may be tied to cholesterol i mean you know at the end of the day nobody knows peter atia may be right we may be right who knows we're still learning this stuff it's so but that is real cause of concern that you know the statins uh, you may not die of a heart attack, but it changes other things in your body so that you, you know, at least on a population wide study, the people who take statins die at a higher rate from other things, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense at all. But one can imagine mechanisms for it. Yeah. And again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I won't disagree with either of you. But it just when you said we don't have all the answers, it just seems like there's so much evidence tacked on your side. Because with a high-fat, low-carb diet, if it reduces symptoms of all the diseases we talked about, it seems like that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's hard. The challenge, of course, is in, in dealing with humans. There's, there's a lot of the studies are correlations uh, rather than causation. Doing the controlled studies, probably good nutritional studies will never see that will answer these questions. And even the one with Rob Lustig that did with the um, fatty liver, it was a small population, small number of people over a short time frame. So there's a lot of challenging uh, challenges to get through the evidence. And then talking about pernicious incentives, there's a lot of money coming in to uh, do research on statins to prove that they work. There's very little money coming in to do research proving that statins don't work. In <laughs> Zero fact, <if> you, <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's an imbalance on on the types of publications that are being done, and there's a whole literature about bias when the comp when drug companies fund research and what happens with that. So um, it's it's challenging, but I you know I hope more people. Uh, come around to our point of view on these things. But, you know, we just have to be open-minded, look at the literature and talk to other people about it like we're doing now. So I do want to dive into one more topic. So you don't sure. know this about me. I have a special interest in cancer. My sister was diagnosed with stage four cancer 18 months ago. And I know that Thomas Seyfried wrote one of the intros in your book. Can you describe to me the metabolism and how it relates to cancer and how cancer is probably not genetic? Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's a fascinating topic. Um cancer is um well when when cancer have you talked about Otto Warburg at all in your program? I have, but, but so, please please go for yeah, I've talked about it with someone else, but please to real it's a, yeah, to Otto Warburg was a German scientist, a fascinating story. Uh, Ravenous is a great book about him. Uh, but um, he he looked at metabolic pathways for driving cancer, particularly glucose metabolism. I mean, there's no question that cancer cells burn a lot of glucose. That's why we do PET scans to find cancer cells. Almost all cancer cells do that. Um, 
what happened though was in the 1950s with the genetic revolution everybody put saw genetics as the solution for for medical problems rather than rather than molecular rather than uh metabolic science and Otto Warburg was a metabolic scientist and a lot of the metabolic science was lost during World War II when the you know the Germans and the you know Europe was just in complete disarray so Fast forward to 1950, everyone began doing research on genetics and uh, and how genetics could play a role in cancer. And there's, you know, fast forward 40 years later, 50 years later, the Human Genome Project, where the goal was to sequence the human genome and understand the master blueprint for disease. And we did that famously, beautifully in the 2000s. And everyone said, wow. This is great. Now, cancer is a genetic disease due to mutations. All we need to do is we, we sequence the human genome. Now let's just sequence the cancer genome. In other words, take a bunch of cancers, all different types, sequence them, find out what mutations they are, and then design drugs for them, you know, like Gleevec or, you know, Herceptin. There are different drugs you could design that specifically target certain mutations and then we'll treat all cancers and game over. So what happened, there was a second human genome project that never got any publicity that, that ended about 2010. It was called the Human Tumor Genome Project. And what happened was briefly is they sequenced, they just did what we said, they sequenced a number of uh, thousands of human cancers and what they found was extremely disappointing. There were mu mutations in these cancers, but there were no consistent mutations. In other words, the same cancer in one patient compared to another patient, the same cell type had different mutations. In fact, the same cancer in the same patient had different mutations. In fact, the same cancer in the same location in the same patient, the same lump tumor had different mutations. So whatever was happening, they appeared to be completely random and there wasn't like a single driver mutation, despite the fact there were certain oncogenes that are driver mutations that have been discovered. They unfortunately are not the rule and most cancers have sort of random random mutations. Um, and this this led to a great disappointment in the in the early 2010s about the, our approaches to cancer and even though richard nixon started the war on cancer in the national cancer institute in the 1970s um sadly overall uh we're not winning the war on cancer you know you could even say cancer is winning so it's caused people like thomas seafried and others to take a look at metabolic drivers for cancer, specific metabolic things. And, and it appears as evidenced by back to the ketogenic diet, using that as a tool to switch our metabolism to ketosis and turn down metabolic illness for certain types of cancers, particularly glioblastoma multiforming, which is a brain cancer that Teddy Kennedy died of and other people have died of. Uh, they've had dramatic results using ketosis on that type of cancer. And now they're beginning to use ketogenic therapy as an adjunct to basically all, all types of cancer. And, and there's, you know, the work's very exciting. You know, the, the final answers aren't in, but there's promise that turning down glucose metabolism by switching ketones, we know 
tumors high, are highly glucose metabolic. The idea may be to starve those, and it's probably not that simple, you know, simple a thing, but there does appear to be some effect in certain types of cancers by these metabolic strategies, these ketogenic diets. And since there've been no harmful effects from it, it's not like, oh, it makes the cancer worse. A lot of people are making the argument that, well, maybe we should start doing this on a broader scale with with all patients, you know, who who are cancer patients or in recovery. So it doesn't do any harm. And there's evidence that it helps at least some of them. Absolutely. I mean, talking about big business, I know you said surgery is big business. I'm sure chemotherapy is also big business as well. So I know that Jason Fung, I know he's your friend, slightly disagrees with Otto Warburg and he thinks that cancer cells eat more than glucose. Like they get a little smarter and they can eat proteins and other things as well. How yep. would that? Yeah. So with a ketogenic diet, if you're eating meat, wouldn't that still feed the cancer cells? Yeah. And that's why I said, it's probably not as simple as turning is getting rid of glucose. I think it take it down one more level. There's a primary, there's a, a, a protein uh, that's, a signaling protein, a nutrient sensing protein called mTOR that's present throughout the animal kingdom, conserved over billions of years from yeast all the way to humans. It's a master survival protein. And um, it, it basically senses glucose, tells cell to grow. If there's no glucose, it tells cell to repair and do autophagy. There's a lot of evidence. I mean, it was not even evidence. It's known that cancer's work by growing. So turning mTOR on to this growth state drives cancers. And there's evidence that drugs that block mTOR, this protein, and turn it off, drugs like rapamycin are actually FDA approved to treat cancers. It just so turns out they also treat heart disease and, and Alzheimer's disease research they're doing and many other things. But turning down mTOR for cancer appears to be a very, very powerful signaling thing. So glucose, insulin, IGF-1 all turn mTOR on and presumably drive cancer. So by metabolically turning mTOR down, and as it turns out, protein in the diet doesn't affect mTOR. So it's mainly glucose that drives mTOR up. Protein is a very, very slight effect. So if you want to get a maximum signaling effect on mTOR, you know, with lifestyle is with um, getting rid of uh, glucose and turning down your insulin, or you can take rapamycin or probably do both if if you really want to. It's crazy. You always hear from medical doctors, there's no one pill to get healthy, but it seems like the one pill is the ketogenic diet. Well, it the diseases that are responsible for the majority of the problems in our healthcare today are the chronic diseases. So, and those are the diseases that metabolic disease and things like lowering carbohydrates in the diet can help many, many patients, not all patients, but many patients. Uh, turning down insulin resistance is a factor across all those diseases. Now, if I have a, if I have a broken arm, ketogenic diet may help me repair, but I'll need to go to a hospital, get a cast and set the bone. If I have a, and a congenital heart valve, like a bicuspid aortic valve, ketogenic diet probably isn't going to, isn't going to do anything. I need surgery to replace the valve. I need things. So certain things, traditional medical care does now a, 
a ketogenic diet or a metabolic health strategy, certainly no one will argue getting rid of junk foods is going to help everyone for everything. But to your point, for these chronic diseases that occupy most of our healthcare dollars and most of us, 90% of us are going to die of, um, those, interestingly enough, are driven by common metabolic factors that can be influenced by the junk food we eat and, you know, and exercise and sleep and stress. Yeah, it seems so simple. So we're, we're coming up on the hour, Mark. And I got to tell you, when you, I'm going to sound like a little schoolgirl. When you sent me a pre-order of your book, I like text all my friends like, oh my gosh, a, a medical doctor sent me a pre-order of his book. I'm like a celebrity. So mm-hmm. if we had one takeaway from this hour interview, what would you tell the audience? What's the biggest point you want them to know? I mean, the thing that I learned was that the the chronic diseases that I was facing and, you know, statistically all adults are, are facing can be slowed down, even reversed by lifestyle choices. Lifestyle choices matter. You know, in fact, they're probably more powerful than the drugs I was taking because the drugs I was taking didn't change the underlying root cause. They made my symptoms better, but they didn't change the underlying disease. So for me, the take home message was that lifestyle really, really matters. And, you know, we get to choose every day what we put in our mouth when we eat. And, uh, and it does make a difference, probably more than most of the medicines we take. I couldn't agree more. So the book is the lies I taught in medical school. And then you just made a post. It was just released. Is it on audiobook now too? Actually, the the book is available for pre-orders. We just went with Ben Bella Books as a publisher, which is Chris Palmer's uh, Mm -hmm. uh, publisher as well. And um, pre-orders are available on my website for the hardcover book. The the other pre-orders are not yet, but if people want to try it and get a sample, you can go to my website. I'll be glad to give you the link here, but they can go to my website and you're welcome to download a sample chapter, either an audio form or a PDF of the first chapter. And you can see if you, if it interests you. It will. Everyone will love this book. The Your website is robertlufkinmd.com, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, and, and one of the headings is lies. I taught in medical school. Just go on there and there's a free sample chapter button. You could just hit and download it from there if you want. It is totally worth a read. Anyone listening? Well, doctor, I cannot thank you enough for your time and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Vince. It was a pleasure. And, and thank you for the work you're doing with this podcast. Uh, you're really uh, helping people's lives. Thank you. Talk to you soon.